it is the last day, cried Candide. Francois-Marie Arouet, Voltaire, Candide, or Optimism. It was the first of November, 1755. All Saints' Day dawned crisp and cloudless, and white stone Lisbon lay mantled in a keen autumnal light that cast elongated shadows from the summits of the surrounding hills to the banks of the river Tagus. A faint northeast breeze carried ribbons of chimney smoke from the cooking fires warming the kitchens of the city, spiraling aloft into a cerulean sky, and caused the standards raised on the battlements of the tenth-century Moorish-built Castillo de Saujarge, which kept vigil over Lisbon, to scarcely waver. In the harbor, formidable Portuguese men-of-war and frigates, their gun portholes latched, and a flotilla of merchant ships flying flags from England, the Netherlands, France, Spain, Denmark, Malta, Venice, and Hamburg, bobbed faintly on limpid waters. To even the most jaundiced observer, Lisbon seemed like a place blessed. It was blessed geography, in fact, that had given rise to Lisbon. Spread over seven verdant hills on the northern shore of the Tagus, close to the Atlantic but sheltered from the open sea, and backed by the jagged peaks of Sintra, the beauty of the place was already grasped by the Phoenicians, who first settled the area around 1000 BC. Greeks and later Carthaginians established trading communities here, and later still, the Romans elevated Olisipo, as they called the port, to a municipium. The Visigoths made it a citadel, as did the Moors. By the time Lisbon became the capital of a fledgling Portugal in 1260, the city already possessed a downright hoary past but it was the advent of overseas conquest, exploration, and trade during the 15th and 16th centuries, the so-called Age of Discovery, that gave Lisbon the air of one of Europe's most opulent and vibrant capitals. Explorers such as Prince Henry the Navigator, Vasco da Gama, and scores of other intrepid mariners set sail from Lisbon on their imperial voyages for God, glory, and gold not necessarily in that order. And it was to Lisbon's Cays that they returned from Asia, Africa, and Brazil, laden with the exotic fruits of an empire, including spices, gold, rare woods, arms, sugar, tobacco, and, infamously, West African slaves. When a veritable motherload of gold and profuse diamond deposits were discovered in Brazil at the end of the 17th century, a good many contemporaries believed that the Portuguese had stumbled upon the true El Dorado. Portugal, a country that was diminutive, geographically remote, and almost wholly agricultural, became justly renowned for its guilt. Merchants who have lived in Portugal inform us wrote John Wesley, the English divine and founder of Methodism, that the king had a large building filled with diamonds, and more gold stored up, coined and uncoined, than all the other princes of Europe together. Despite the splendid, if ill-gotten, bounty of an empire, however, by the middle of the 18th century most of Portugal was still wallowing in nearly medieval destitution. King João V, 
who fancied himself a Portuguese version of Louis XIV, Le Roi Soleil, was entitled to his royal fifth of all gold and diamonds, and he lavished the treasure on the Catholic Church and the royal family. The Portuguese nobility wielded most of the monopolies on imports, and foreign merchants, most notably the British, controlled the lion's share of the highly profitable re-export market. The goldsmiths of Italy and the diamond cutters of the Netherlands gained more from the treasures of Brazil than any Portuguese. Had Portugal fostered a true merchant class and emergent industries as did, for example, their diligent Dutch rivals, the country would have thrived. But as it was, Portugal was unable to adequately feed and clothe the populace from its own resources and was obliged to import, among other necessities, wheat, cloth, and, astonishingly...